We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Good evening. It's good to see you guys tonight as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Several years ago, probably about 10 years ago, we had a van, and um, one day a smell started raising up in the van. It was a Honda Odyssey, so it was kind of a bigger van, and you know, I never crawled in the back because the kids were back in the back of the van, and this smell just started growing and growing until a couple days later it was pungent. And I was starting to wonder if we just needed to haul the van and take it off. And I got in the back and I cleaned out the van and just couldn't find the smell. And we would drive the van for a few days. And finally, I took it to a, a place to get it detailed where they'd shampoo the carpet and everything. I just assumed some milk had been spilled in the carpet or something. And I uh, went and packed the van up. And, you know, it smelled like that same smell with some flowers underneath. You know, it, it was horrible. And I, I talked to the girl at the detailing place. I said, hey, I, what's going on with our van? You know, we've shampooed it. She said, you know, there's an extra deep cleaning we can do that will use chemicals to kind of neutralize the smell. And I was processing through that because it was pretty expensive. And I got back in the back of the van, and in one of those little compartments, I don't know how I'd missed it, one of the kids had spilt like about a cup of milk that had just set and curdled and curdled and curdled for about two weeks. And when I lifted that lid back, I almost threw up. But what was interesting is we were still able to use that van in that two-week period. Because once you got, I remember coming back from getting the thing cleaned up, and I was like, well, that sort of got rid of most of it. Maybe we could live like this. But then you'd go in the house, you'd kind of reset everything, and you'd come back out, and you'd be like, I, I can't even climb in that van. And it, it taught me a lesson. You guys know the term, right, olfactory fatigue, that, that we get used to the smells that are around us. And so we didn't have to throw out the van because if you just sat there for five or ten minutes, you sort of forgot about the smell. And I think a lot of times that's what we can do in our spiritual life is we do a little bit of comparative spirituality. We sort of take the temperature around us. What are the people around us watching? What are the people around us doing? What are the people around us thinking or talking about? Or what are they spending their time doing? And we say, I'm doing better than the average, so I'm okay. Meanwhile, we're sitting in, in a smell that's not so pleasant. Our hearts are far from God. And so we are prone to, to do that comparative thing, but we need a jolt. Just like leaving the van and coming back to the van and being shocked by that smell, I think what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount to his audience is giving them that jolt. He's resetting their expectations. Uh, that last week, we talked about Jesus' relationship with the law, and, and basically, uh, his relationship with the law, he was perfectly obedient to the law, but then he let us know also that he was the ultimate interpreter of the law. And we talked a lot about the fact that um, he wants our heart, that we don't measure our spirituality merely by our external actions. And so what Jesus is going to do in this week's text is he's really going to give us examples of what he meant. We talked last week about love God 
and love your neighbor. Well, this week we're going to put the rubber to the road, and he's going to give us six examples of what he means when he says, love God and love your neighbor. And, and one of the things that we'll see is that God is far more concerned with our heart than our actions. Not because externals aren't important, but because they're an outworking or as a result of what's going on in our heart. I had Jordan read uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, because I think that is a good frame around what we're going to be talking about tonight. That Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. You see, so many of us are conformed by the world subconsciously. As we, as we look at the people around us, like I said earlier, we, we measure ourselves kind of based on a comparative scale, and we can feel pretty good about ourselves. But I find that when I do that, it, it really produces in me either a compromise or a self-righteousness, and neither of those is good. But Paul says here, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And so I think that's the frame that we want to look at as we look at what Jesus says. He walks us through these six examples. Later in chapter 15, we talked last week about Jesus and the confrontation with the Pharisees about the hand-washing. And he rebukes them about completely missing the law. And, and later in that passage, he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And you're like, man, one out of two ain't bad. At least they're doing the right thing on the outside. But you really understand that Jesus is not pleased by that at all. He says in, in 15 verses 16 to 20, he says, are you still without understanding do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and that defiles from a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. He doesn't let us off the hook by merely following the rules. We left off last week. Jesus said in verse 20 of chapter 5 in Matthew, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And fortunately, he doesn't leave us hanging there. He's going to spell it out. That, that in these six examples, he's going to tell us that the most important thing about you is not what you do, but it's who you are. Don't simply obey the rules. You know, as Jesus goes through these examples, I think about, I think about the idea of principles, right? Principles versus rules. A lot of us want to go to God's Word, and we want to simply have Him give us a list of rules. I remember in, in middle school or something, the first time I kind of realized the Bible doesn't necessarily address every single issue that we face in contemporary life with a set of rules. 
but it gives us principles and it helps us know who God is. I teach a BTCP course, Bible Training Center for Pastors here at Denton Bible. And one of the key principles that we work throughout the two years is learning to think biblically and theologically. Because my desire is for the students in that class not to simply repeat and wrote and conform to whatever image I've got for them, but to actually apply biblical principles to whatever they're facing. You guys are all in different spheres of life. You have different jobs. You have different people that you influence. You have different decisions you have to make every day. You have different families, different family situations that you face. It would be impossible for us to sit here and tell you how to respond in every one of those cases. But, but what we can do is we can teach you, we can help you learn the Bible, to know God, to learn the principles so that you can apply those principles to everyday circumstances. And so these six examples Jesus gives us aren't some sort of exhaustive list of how we keep the law, but they demonstrate how we approach the law, how we approach obedience. You know, we don't live under the law, but we live to obey God. And so as we go through these principles, it's going to kind of seem like a list, but I I want you to think about it more as illustrating principles to help us understand how to live. Look at the first example in verse 21. He says, you have heard it said from those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, he's, he's appealing here to the tradition and to the law. So the law says in the, in the Ten Commandments, you shouldn't murder. You shall not murder. But then he applies the Jewish tradition over that, whoever murders will be liable to judgment speaking of the courts. And so Jesus is going to kind of speak at two different levels here. He's going to talk about the law and then your traditions. But then he goes on, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, whether he insults him whether he insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. Jesus is not contradicting the law. He's, what he's saying basically is he, he uses uh, the, the conjunction, he uses day, which is a softer conjunction than Allah, which means but. It, day can be used even as an and. So, so basically what he's saying here is is you guys, here's what you've heard, but let me give you a more complete understanding of what I mean. You start with anger, and then you go to insult, and then you call him a name. He's not necessarily talking about an escalation. He's saying, this is contempt for your brother. The issue is anger. Anger, contempt, name-calling, These things destroy relationships. They destroy fellowship. They destroy harmony. Uh, That basically, when I am so angry at my brother, then I am concerned with myself. Contempt with others is, it's usually our sinful desire to get what we want or to put ourselves above others. And unfortunately, a lot of times, we just kind of blow anger off. As long as you can give me a halfway decent reason that you were angry, I'm going to be like, oh man, I get it. But Jesus doesn't do that. 
He treats it seriously. He says, basically, you've committed murder in your heart when you've done that, when you place yourself in that position. He says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. Now remember, Jesus, the setting, Jesus is, is, he's giving this sermon in the region north of Galilee. And if you're making your gift at the altar in Jerusalem, that's about an 80-mile journey. And he's saying, if you're in Jerusalem at the altar making your sacrifice, and you know that someone has something against you, you leave the altar. He's calling them to a high standard, and it demonstrates just how serious he is about this. That basically he's saying, your internal relationship with your brother is more important than your external religious activity. You can be down here doing this external religiosity, but if you've got contempt in your heart from your brother, something is missing. Something is off. Basically, uh, he says, you need to go be reconciled. And then he goes on. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And then he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. You know, he doesn't say brother here. So a lot of commentators say he's transitioned from relational strife with your brother, a fellow Christian, to now an accuser, not a brother, someone outside the church. If you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you're put in prison, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid your last penny. It's a bleak circumstance. You're about to be put in prison because of this conflict with this non-believer. Work things out. Don't justify your anger. Don't justify your contempt. Basically, when we damage our relationship to others, we're damaging our relationship with God. And that's a high standard. Well, behind murder, we see an attitude of anger or contempt. And behind adultery, we see an attitude of lust. Jesus goes on. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I to say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa. Another raising of the bar. He says when you look on a woman with lustful intent, it's, it's not a passing attraction, but it's the idea, it's a deliberate harboring or desires for an illicit relationship. Not noticing, but imbibing Meditating, meditating, or seeking to possess. Basically, he's saying it's not just wrong for you to break the commandment, it's wrong for you to want to break the commandment. But Jesus says, I'm worried about your heart. In both of these first two examples, it's important to note Jesus. He's not saying there's no difference between anger and murder or there's no difference between lust and adultery. In a sense, our logic lets us know that those two things are different. But what he's saying is, I'm, these things are 
in my mind's wicked, evil, don't move the bar. That he's saying, uh, he's demonstrating the seriousness of what's happening with our hearts, the seriousness of how much he carries about our heart. And so in a day that we live in, I mean, lust is celebrated, right? Just turn on the TV. The consumption of internet pornography is out the roof. Uh, Our culture celebrates sexual freedom. And the church isn't exempt. That we're so prone to treat sexual immorality, sexual sin, lightly, to say it's just not that big of a deal. But Jesus doesn't let us do that. Because what is lust? Lust is basically saying, I know that you've given me this, God, but I want the other. It's, it's, it's the Garden of Eden. You can have any tree of the garden. No, but I want that one because it looks good. It's a lack of trust in God's provision. It's a lack of gratefulness and, and, and gratitude for what he's given us. Well, how serious is he? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better to you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it's better to you to lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Obviously, those actions, gouging out your eyes, cutting off your hands, wouldn't take away the temptation, wouldn't take away the ability to lust. But Jesus is making a point. Take this seriously. Put it to death. Don't make compromise. He's showing us the extent that we're to pursue holiness. And so I ask you, as I've been praying all this week, Am I taking holiness seriously? Or have I moved the bar? Have I become complacent? Have I let olfactory fatigue set into my spiritual life to where I'm just content with whatever the status quo? Jesus goes on, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is hearkening back here to um, Deuteronomy 24, where Moses makes, where the law makes an accommodation for a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce. And, and the idea is that uh, the wording in, in Deuteronomy 24 basically says, uh, if, if she finds no favor in his eyes because of an indecency. And there was quite a debate raging when Jesus would have given these words. There's quite a debate raging in the Jewish community that there were kind of two main streams of thought of, of what Moses meant when he said she finds no favor because of indecency. And one of the rabbinical schools says basically indecency means sexual immorality, means adultery. So the only way that a man can give a woman a certificate of divorce is if she's committed adultery. 
But then there was another school that basically said he finds no favor because of indecency could pretty much mean anything. The illustration we always use is literally, you could put a woman out if she burnt your bread and you didn't find favor because of her indecency. So, it, so there was this debate over the idea of what does indecency mean? Jesus transcends that. That's not the point, he says. He's going to say later in Matthew 19 when he's confronted with this question, they try to get him in trouble to get him caught between these two camps. And they, they ask him about divorce. And basically he says, you know, Moses allowed, that God allowed through the law for divorce because of your hard-heartedness. That's one of the amazing things about the Bible, isn't it? That, that God demands this standard of holiness but then he also knows that we're human, that his word is applicable to real life, that he knows that because we are weak and frail, there are going to be times when marriages end in divorce. And so how does Jesus address it? He says, look, he allowed that because of your hardness of heart. Divorce is never the ideal when we look at Scripture, we see that Jesus is over and above it. Marriage is a lifelong commitment that should never be apart. And we see that in Jesus' world, divorce is never encouraged. It's permitted in the case of adultery and a few other cases that we'll unpack later, but it's never encouraged. But Moses makes an accommodation because he understands our, that we're sinners. He says she commits adultery. It's a present tense verb. It doesn't mean that you live in perpetual adultery. Some of you in this room have been divorced. You've remarried. You're not living in perpetual adultery. That's not what Jesus is saying. Paul's going to stay in 1 Corinthians 7, basically stay where you are. Be faithful where you are that we love a God and, and the way we respond is because of the gospel, we can know that wherever we are, God accepts us. When we confess our sins, he's faithful to us to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So whatever situation you find yourself in today, know that God accepts you and you walk forward in faithfulness where you are. But recognize all along that Jesus doesn't lower the bar in this statement. He says the ideal is that marriage is permanent. But divorce, it's not an unpardonable sin. Jesus presses in to realize that our hearts affect our relationships and our relationships with others reflect our relationship with him. And no relationship goes deeper than marriage. He goes on in verse 33, again, you've heard it said, those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you can't make one hair black or white. 
Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. The, the basically, by definition, an oath is a promise that you make calling a deity in to witness that oath. And potentially, when, when we make oaths, we're using the Lord's name in vain. But, but the Jews had come up with a workaround. We could say, I make this oath by heaven, or I make this oath by the throne of God, or by earth. I make this, throne, this oath by Jerusalem or by my own head, and what does Jesus say? Don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, that's the throne of God. Your workaround didn't work. By earth, it's God's footstool. Or by Jerusalem, this is the city of the great king. You don't make an oath by your head because you can't even color, you can't even control the color of your own hair. The issue isn't the oath. It's, it's the motivation for engaging the oath. Why do you even have to make the oath? How about being a person of, in, of integrity and let your yes be yes, your no be no? Someone that people can trust. The standard's high. Be a man, be a woman of your word. You know, to simply avoid, to, to read this passage and say, okay, that's fine, I won't take an oath. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is, tell the truth. Because God's a witness anyway to everything that you would say. Again, what's the condition of your heart? The last two examples are related because both of them relate to how we act when we're wrong. I think one of the most popular genres of movie seems to be the vengeance movie, right? We always want the villain to get his comeuppance. We always want to see justice executed. And I think those movies are so popular because we want to feel it. Like nothing is worth in a TV show or a movie that you're watching when the, when the villain or the bad guy or someone does something wrong and he gets away with it. You just want to squeeze, you know, you're just, you're irritated, angry, and those are fake people. Jesus says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would use you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. An eye for an eye. This is a pretty standard law. We see it all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi. But, but the idea about this eye for an eye is that it was actually, these laws were laws that were actually designed to keep you from giving excess punishment. It was actually meant as a restraint to avoid over-retaliation. The punishment must fit the crime, uh, not cruel and unusual. But we, but we realize here what Jesus says is you need to refuse to drop to the level of your aggressor. 
that this is a personal thing. He says, not only do we refuse to seek vengeance, but we actively seek generosity, giving help to the very people that's demanding us. So, so look, he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, that's the most insulting thing you can do is to backhand someone. He says, turn the other cheek. And he's not giving us a command, okay, left cheek, right cheek, now I'm coming at you. He's implying that you don't return what they deserve. If anyone takes your, clo- your tunic, right? If anyone takes your tunic, let him have your cloak. You know, the cloak was your outer garment. It had a dual purpose. It was your outer garment and it was your bedding at night. And he says, if they take your tunic, give them your cloak. Man, that's countercultural. That's countercultural to my heart. He says, it's better to show up in court naked than to, 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 to avenge, to execute vengeance. If anyone forces you to go a mile, the Romans could come in and conscript you to do work, that to carry things, to do whatever they needed. Go the extra mile. Do it with a happy heart. Don't be resentful. Why would Jesus say this? It's about honor, isn't it? All these cases, we, we all have this sense of entitlement. We all have this sense of what we're worth. We all have a sense and a desire to people, for people to treat us a certain way. I know I want to be treated well. And in all these cases, it's you're being mistreated by someone who's doing you wrong. And my fleshly response is, I've got to, to take care of this. They will not treat me this way. And Jesus says, uh-uh. You turn the other cheek. You give him the robe. You carry it an extra mile. You give to the beggar. Jesus wants us to actively seek generosity. And, and he basically says, look, you have no honor. You have no property that's worth defending compared to the opportunity to show the love of God to everyone else. Defending my honor feels really important to me in the moment. But compared to the opportunity that I have to show the world God's love, it's nothing. So what if you're taken advantage of? Look at Jesus. He had every right for honor, every right for glory. And he was stripped and crucified and condemned in a court with a, with a pretense of a hearing. With I mean, and he gave it all. He didn't demand equality with God, a thing to be grasped, Paul says in Philippians. You lay it down. In your day-to-day, do you do that? I struggle with that. I want to be recognized. One commentator said, he says, it's, unwor- it's the unworthy who've experienced the good things of the kingdom as they have experienced the surprise of unexpected grace. So they act in a similar matter towards those who are undeserved among them. You and I have received God's mercy and God's grace. 
when we've treated him with dishonor, how much more should we extend those to those who dishonor us? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He moves on. He says, love your enemies. You've heard it said, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't the Gentiles do the same? Your Father in heaven is perfect, so you be perfect. If you love only your friends, you're no different than the pagans. Anybody can do that. Jesus calls us to more. To love your enemies demands an eternal perspective. The only way I can love people that are my enemies is by understanding the nature of their soul and understanding their need for mercy and grace. That it's so easy in this day to look at my political enemies, my cultural enemies, enemies to the gospel, people who speak out against Christ, to see newsreels, to feel content and anger. But the illustration we have here is God makes the sun shine on all of us, good and bad. So can I not do the same? Can I not see that person who's defying my worldview as an eternal soul in need of the gospel? Can I not love my enemies with the love that God has for them? Is that too much to ask? It's a high bar. The example he gives us, tax collectors, there's no one more hated. Those are the guys that conscripted with the Roman government basically to say, I'll collect these taxes, but whatever they could collect above that, they got to keep. So they were seen as traitors. Jesus says that we love even them. To return evil for good is devilish. This is Plummer. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. And to return good for evil is divine. Jesus calls us to consider others more important than ourselves. It's difficult. How do we do this? Love our neighbor. Be holy because he is holy. This is our goal. We can't get there. This bar is so high. But, and we don't appeal to our keeping the law as a way to approve our righteousness. That's legalism. What this text asks of us is that we desire God's will so much that we seek to please Him in every area of our lives all the way down to our motives. That he wants righteousness in our heart. He asks us to be perfect like him as we deal with anger, as we deal with adultery and lust, as we deal with our marriages and our spouses, as we are committed 
to truth, as we avoid retaliation, as we love our enemies. When Jesus says, love God and love your neighbor, this is what he's saying. All the way down to the depth of your being. This is the target. This is what we strive for. And guys, we fall short of this every day. And when we do, we rely on his abundant grace. That none of us can do this. But let's not ever move the standard. Let's hold the standard out as Jesus does. Let's commit our hearts to the holiness that he asks of us. Let's ask him to conform us, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we love God and as we love our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, this text levels us. The bar is so high, the standard is so high. But Lord, you show us your heart. that your desire is not merely an external rule following, but an internal heart change. And I pray that you would change my heart, that you would change the hearts of all of us, and that we would walk with a seriousness, with a sobriety as we approach your word, that you would transform us to be men and women who stand apart from our culture, that our kindness, when we lose our honor, that our loving of our neighbors would seem so odd that people would notice and that they would see our good deeds before men. Lord, use us to draw men and women to you. In your son's name we pray, amen.